I was preparing my talk this afternoon and I was just appreciating how, you know, the way we teach this retreat is, is very much emergent. It's not like we have a complete game plan in place. We're, we're showing up in a way that's responsive to what's happening in our, in our container, in our community. And for me, there's such a practice in that style of teaching but I like it. It's so much more interesting and juicy. And um, I'm aware, as are probably many of you, that tomorrow's the big day. This time the big day isn't the last day of the retreat. The big day is election day. And just sensing some of the intensity, some of the, the charge in the field that's probably related to that. I know I know it's on my mind even as I'm not, you know, actively checking the news while I'm here and it's part of the urgency of of this time, of our times, this extraordinary challenge of um of what's happening in our world at this time. And I know that many of you and and myself felt uh, moved by the questions and responses at the end of the, the morning period the last couple of days. And I'm aware that as I deepen in the path, I, I feel like I don't actually have more answers. I generally have more curiosity, generally have more um, of a realization of how much more there is to know, how much more there is to understand. And I I'm just sensitive to how we talk about Sangha as a refuge. And sometimes Sangha really feels like a refuge. You know, sometimes it's so wonderful to come and sit in like-minded community and we feel the support of how it is to come together and do the practice. But, you know, if your uh, path of practice has been anything like mine, sometimes Sangha doesn't feel like a refuge. Sometimes Sangha is the place where we bump and we get triggered out and personalities get in the way and, and it can be kind of like that feeling of you put a bunch of rocks in a tumbler and they have to bang up against one another to begin to shine more. And, and Sangha, of course, uh, is a place where systems of oppression, systems of control, systems of dominance are going to play out. It's, it's, um, it's part of uh, how it is to, to be here, to be inside um, the dominant culture, even as we are doing our heartfelt, devoted work of waking up into a more just world together. We're still inside of it to a certain degree. I wanted to share with you uh, this sutta that I like called the Acrobat Sutta. And I was looking at different translations of the sutta. And there's a story about an acrobat who has an assistant. And in a couple of the versions, the assistant had a complicated uh, poly name that I was having a hard time pronouncing. And I found this version by um, Tanisa Robiko, Tanjef. <laughs> I guess the poly name that is translated as, as frying pan, so the assistant is frying pan, so I'll share this translation with you. It's a little more interesting and easier to read. <laughs> so um, so this is, a, this, this is the, the Buddha telling a story that once upon a time, these practitioners, um, there was a bamboo acrobat, so I guess they, they did acrobats 
in acrobatics with bamboo. A bamboo acrobat that erected a bamboo pole and he addressed his assistant, frying pan, come my dear frying pan, climb up the bamboo pole and stand on my shoulders. As you say, master, frying pan answered the bamboo acrobat and climbing the bamboo pole, she stood on his shoulders. You can kind of get the image of that. So then the bamboo acrobat said to his assistant, now you watch me, my dear frying pan. You watch after me and I'll watch after you. Thus, protecting one another, watching after one another, will show off our skill, receive our reward, and come down safely from the bamboo pole. When he'd said this, frying pan said to him, but that won't do at all, master. You watch after yourself, and I'll watch after myself, and thus with each of us protecting ourselves, watching after ourselves, we'll show off our skill, receive our reward, and come down safely from the bamboo pole. What frying pan said to her master was the right way in this case. This is what the Buddha said. Then the Buddha goes on to say, and he, you know, he's like, he could, be, he could be talking to us. He's speaking to practitioners. Practitioners, the establishing of mindfulness is to be practiced with the thought, I'll watch after myself. The establishing of mindfulness is to be practiced with the thought, I'll watch after others. When watching after yourself, you watch after others. When watching after others, you watch after yourself. And how do you watch after others when watching after yourself? Through cultivating the practice, through developing it, through pursuing it. This is how you watch after others when watching after yourself. And how do you watch after yourself when watching after others? Through endurance, through harmlessness, through a mind of goodwill, and through sympathy. This is how you watch after yourself when watching after others. So he just goes on saying that we watch after ourselves, we watch after others. When you watch after yourself, you watch after others. <laughs> when you watch after others, you watch after yourself. So he's really speaking to this, like, to be okay, <laughs> to be okay on, the, on these bamboo poles. We, we watch after ourselves and we watch after others, that it's not enough to... Um, it's not enough to just watch after one another. We also have to tend to ourselves. We have to do both. And so it's really naming how kind of a, an individual and a collective or, interp or interpersonal approach, a relational approach works, um, works together. And this is just a, an ongoing acknowledgement of this deep sea of relatedness that we swim in together, even as we're sitting here in silence, not talking that much with our eyes closed. We feel the relatedness. And some of, you know, just what's, what's up can, can feel, feel so complex, feel so hard to figure out. To me, it can, it can feel unbearable sometimes. Like, I, I know that there's not exactly one answer in my thinking mind, you know, because it's not, that's not the nature. It's not that simple. And, and um, you know, and even being here, this amazing, beautiful spirit rock doing so much good work in the world. You know, we are not separate. We're, we're, we're not some isolated refuge that's totally liberated already. We keep waking up together over and over and over again. And, 
um, I'm so appreciating, you know, the work that's happening in these communities to decenter whiteness and to really build in equity and so much more. And I just want to acknowledge it would be, you know, kind of an understatement to say that that the practice, like, it's true that this practice can be used to bypass. You know that, right? It's true that this practice can be used to bypass the messiness. Tanisha has talked about this. And it's true that with some of how the practice has come down to us within the dominant culture, there has been an overlay of this, um, the primacy of this lens of individual salvation. And when you, when you slap whiteness and patriarchy on top of that, it's like, how do we even how do, we even do this? <laughs> but, um, you know, I really take heart when I consider that the, the Buddhist teachings arose in India as a spiritual force against the injustices of the time against the caste system, which was a form of racism. Um, the Buddha was advocating for equality in so many ways, completely radical for his time. And so we're here, we're here practicing in service to personal and collective liberation. They, they are inseparable, they go together. Many of you have heard quote, it's used so often, but it's, it's so good, <laughs> from Lila Watson, who's an Aboriginal elder and activist and educator who lives in, um, in Australia. She says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. If your liberation is bound up with mine, and it is, of course it is. So everything we're doing here, the practices that we're doing here, some of the deep internal work that's unfolding here is happening within this larger context of the Eightfold Path. You know, the, the teaching is not um, only to sit down and pay attention to your breathing. That's one part of it, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of cultivating you know, samadhi and, and growing our, our, our panya. But, um, but the teaching includes, you know, wise livelihood, right action, right speech, all these ways of living a full life. And there's just such a long history of, you know, we, we, we come here in this kind of environment we, we create for the purposes of seclusion, which is so important. It's so important to be able to unplug in order to plug into ourselves more deeply. But, you know, it's like so many of the, of the years and years of, of, of the, Monasteries were more like village temples, communities where people came together. And so just holding what's happening here in this larger view of, of, of Buddha Dhamma on this earth and in the West. And I want to just say a little bit about, um, you know, I'm, I'm all about letting go. I'm, I'm saying yes to letting go. <laughs> yes to letting go of entitlement. Yes to letting go of unearned privilege and power. Yes to sharing power. Yes to letting go. I know it's not so simple. You know, it's not so simple. It's not a same for everybody, this, this, this practice of letting go. But what we're really talking about is letting go of the attachments that bind us. Letting go to the extent possible of that which causes our suffering, um, that which causes suffering, the suffering that, that, um, 
that is up to us in a certain way. You know, that the suffering of our confusion. So I was just thinking, you know, yes to letting go and yes to fighting like hell. They totally go together. (laughs) Both. Both. And so... So a lot of what we're doing here is, is um, helping you, Kitty Saro's beautiful pointings, really supporting you to, to know directly the, the deeper ground that will give you refuge and stability as you, you find your way you know, through, through this life, through the world. I, I come back over and over again to um, you know, the image of the Buddha touching the earth. You know, there's this vow, aditana, determination, sitting, sitting and touching the earth. And it's like so powerful, both, you know, with earth as my witness. You know, I vow to sit here until I'm fully awakened. He, he didn't ask for confirmation from his friends. He didn't call in the heavenly folks. He actually went, he, he brought it down to the, with earth as my witness. And, and there's a metaphor in that. There's a metaphor both of, of earth, uh, yeah, depth feminine, as Tanisra talked about. Well, and also of like the, the deepest ground of our being. The, the <laughs> deepest ground of our being. So we're in this constant dance, you know, relative and ultimate. We're in this constant dance. And just to, to kind of hold the context of what we're doing, you know, Toni Morrison's great words that the function of freedom is to free someone else. So we do our work. We, we do our work to free ourselves, but the function, it doesn't just stop there. Yeah, it's just, it's such a, such a dance these, these days. Um, Ajahn Chah. I have all these pieces of, here we go, paper. Um, Ajahn Chah you know, talks about how it, can, how it can feel sometimes, this, this sense of be, being at battle internally and externally. We, we human beings are constantly, I don't know if I shared this in the other talk, I hope I didn't, but um, we human beings are constantly in combat, at war to escape the fact of being so limited limited by so many circumstances we cannot control. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with what is good, waging war with what is evil, waging war with what is too small, waging war with what is too big, waging war with what is too short or too long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. Do you know how that feels? It's exhausting, isn't it? It's hard. It's exhausting. It's habit. So, you know, I ask this question in my own life these days, you know, like in terms of wisdom and compassionate response, you know, like you know, what, what battles, you know, what battles do I choose to fight? What ones do I not choose to fight, you know? Where do we take a pass? And this is for me as a, as a white, heterosexual, cisgendered woman. You know, this is my process from where I'm situated. And 
I know there's many of you in the room who are situated differently and identified differently and know a level of suffering and fatigue that I don't know. That's just really, really powerful. And, the, and how it is sometimes to feel like there's just not the space to process it all. So I just really am so grateful that we, we have this space together. It's not for processing exactly, we're practicing, but just to have the space to allow this natural intelligence to come forth, the, the, the intelligence, the power, the healing force that, that um, is here to move through us. And I, I often do feel these days like, you know, how, how do we hold it? And you know, the, only, the only holding I know of, the deepest holding is the Dhamma. The deepest, deepest holding is returning our lives. So, I want to talk a little bit about uh, disenchantment and dispassion. Kitty Saras mentioned dispassion last night and this morning because we're, you know, I think collectively in some ways there's just this enchantment with this spell <laughs> of what the dominant culture tells us we need to be happy, which is more and more and more and not to just be as, as we are. Um, and you know, practice spiritual life is, is just a huge uh, reorientation of understanding happiness and the nature of happiness. And so you know, unwinding, unwinding the spells internally, doing our part to unwind the spells of white supremacy and patriarchy and this mechanistic understanding of the earth it keeps the harms happening. And we break the spell, you know, through this practice, through trusting the awareness, through deepening the understanding to open to something that's much more trustworthy. That's not a spell. That's that's truth. And um on a retreat like this, there are moments where, you know, you may begin to get a sense for that which is dispassionate that which isn't caught up in the spell, that which isn't, you know, becoming, becoming, becoming. And the, this word, this word, um, viraga, it really means fading, but I Googled it. Guess what I got? If you Google viraga, Viagra, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I can't believe there's so many things on, on viraga, but it wasn't viraga. <laughs> Viagra. Um, <laughs> Google did a spell check all on, on its own. And, um, but the word passion, you know, the word passion in Buddhist circles, it's a synonym for greed, for lust, for craving. It's a cinnamon. Syn- synonym. <laughs> My brain's a little tired tonight, so bear with me. Um, a synonym for greed, lust, and craving. And, 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 and so dispassion. Dispassion is really a letting go of the attachments that get, that get you hooked, that keep you from being less than all that you are. And as we, it's really, a, for me, the, the feeling of the fading, it's the Buddha language as it well, but it, it, it's like a divesting of grasping. 
You know, when we're, when we're invested in grasping, there's a certain felt sense to it. I know how it feels to be invested in grasping. Do you know? And if you imagine being divested, it's like, oh, that feels really different to be divested, divested of the grasping. Divested of, you know, certain themes or strategies or self-images or ways of being that just become less compelling and less appealing over time. The grasping fades. They, they begin to not capture the heart in the same way. You know, we, we all have these stories, like, you know, a story that, a, a big one for me early in my practice was just this ongoing story that I couldn't do the practice, that everybody else in the room was cut out for the practice, but that I, I really couldn't do the practice. It's deep crevasse of self-doubt. And over the years, you know, that still comes up once in a while, but, but, it, but I, it, it just doesn't capture in the same way. I'm not as invested, even if the storyline runs through. I'm not um, as, as invested. And so the way I'm speaking about dispassion um, isn't some boring, gray, void blob at all. The way I'm speaking about uh, dispassion is something that can hold your passion, is something that can hold your, your fullness, your aliveness, your truth, your the waves, all of the waves of what it means to be human, a feeling living human being. Um, but without getting so stuck, without getting so wrapped up, um, the way I'm using the word dispassion is connected to the larger refuge that holds us. Kitty Saro was, was talking about the space. You know, it's kind of like the earth. The earth is, um, the earth is suspended in space. And what's happening in your mind is happening through this larger space, this larger field of, of knowing awareness. And, we, and, and as, that, as, as we know this field more directly, there's a, just a natural divesting of the grasping. But let's go of us. And so, so it's just this, this sense of like what has been compelling um, begins to change and it can be really disorienting sometimes. It can be not so comfortable. I was thinking about some of the, the fading over, over time of some of the unconscious views around my whiteness that operate inside of me and just like the spell of disenchantment that keeps being seen through, the, 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 the dispassion around these views being entrenched. And I was just reflecting on how, um, you know, there's, there's two causes of wise view. One, one is what we've been talking about, yoni somani sikara, you know, wise attention. And the other is the voice of another. A voice of another is cause for the arising of the view that supports our deepest freedom. And I was just realizing like, how is it, you know, how is it to be willing to hear the views, the experiences of people who are really different from you, you know? I, I'm mostly talking to the white people right now. Just how, how is it to be willing to hear these views? We have to divest ourselves of grasping, you know, to, to really listen and, and um, 
you know, so much of the, how the power and privilege is not seen and how it keeps it in place is like there's, you know, not in contact in a deep way. So it's like just this, this process of, um, of dispassion happens on so many layers. Um, but the process of, of um, becoming disenchanted with that which keeps us separate, that which has the capacity to oppress, is really a pointing, a pointing in a direction of um, connectedness and greater peace. Some of you know the, the, the great uh, teacher Deepama, highly realized woman with unbelievable life story. She, she's really inspired me for, for many, many years. And um, there's this story about her being asked about one of the misunderstandings in Buddhist teachings. And somebody said to her, if we get rid of greed, hate, and ignorance, it sounds like life might be you know, gray and dull. Where's the juice? And Deepama burst out laughing. She said, you don't understand. There is so much sameness in ordinary life. We're always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. Once greed, hatred, and delusion are gone, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now, every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. That's not boring. That's not dull. So in this way, passion is, is, is um, you know, like a quality of zeal and aliveness and chanda. And we need these energies along a spiritual path. We need these energies. The, the, they need to not be, be tamped down. The energies of devotion, energy of ardent, ardency. And um, without this energy, the practice can, can, it can actually get dried up. It can feel that way. And so it's important to kind of know what, what may cover over your, your sense of ardency, your sense of enthusiasm, of devotion. Eugene Cash, our, our good friend, Eugene puts this really beautifully. He says, when this ardency, ardor, like your love, you know, your for the practice. When, when, when this ardency is released, it becomes the fuel of spiritual life, setting the stage for the organic arising of compassion and dispassion. It's like when we, when we let ourselves feel that energy, that love of the Dhamma, and are willing to devote ourselves, to give ourselves over to the practice, there's just this, it's like, it allows the, the divesting of the grasping to happen, and this beautiful responsiveness of the heart when it meets suffering. They go together, compassion and dispassion. And so compassion is really, you know, if, if the awareness is freed from a bunch of clinging, from a bunch of grasping and meing and mying, if the awareness is freed from that, you know, the only response is compassion. There's nothing in the way. Just unencumbered responsiveness. I was remembering a, a three-month retreat that I sat some years ago, and I had a, I had a, it was a powerful retreat. And at, at the end of the retreat, I was, you know, aware that I was living with more, more peace and more happiness 
just an unprecedented kind of peace and happiness um, than, than ever before. It was brand new in, in this life for me. And um, my felt sense of kind of going about my life, I felt very soft and clear and a lot of spaciousness. But it was, it was, it was like I w- was aware as I was leaving the retreat and going back to my home in Durango um, that I, f- I felt com- like a completely different person going back to Durango. It was a very different sense of identity for me. Um, and before I'd left for the retreat, it was funny. I kept having these dreams of my being at my own wake. And I, I realized that it was like some version of myself, some version of myself through the process of the retreat had faded away. And I was still there, you know, still very much there. But it was like there was, there was a fading of... Um, of an old kind of air, and I was abiding in a different place. I was relating in a different place, and it was um, it was like there wasn't as much to bump into inside of me. And I I remember going home and getting in getting to the place I was living, and it was like, oh, cool! This this person's got pretty good taste in clothes, nice closet, you know, pretty good taste in art. But it was just such a different experience going through the home that I'd created. Um, you know, with this process of fading that had unfolded, it was a, it was like experiencing it all for the first time. But there was it was interesting because the the experience of gratification had shifted too. I I um I I love I love food. I'm such a foodie. I love going out to eat great meals. I love seeing my friends and doing that with them. And I got I remember getting home and it was like I liked to go out to eat, but I didn't love to go out to eat. And I was happy to see my friends, but I, I wasn't like really thrilled to see my friends. And I was enjoying riding my road bike, but it wasn't like, yeah, it didn't do it for me in the same way. The gratification was, was, was it was different. And um, I was writing at that time and I, I wrote about, about that I felt like I had been this brightly woven tapestry with so many colors and textures and that the dye had gone out of it. And I hadn't, I didn't even know the word viraga or what dispassion was or that it meant a fading, but it was just so interesting to me how these words and Polly, the root, you know, the fading, and that really, that really was the felt sense of my experience. And, you know, the thing is that as we become disenchanted, we have the space to become re-enchanted. As we become dispassioned, could be a verb, right? We, we can become repassioned in a new in a new way. The world of appearances, the world of our lives can be um, just infused in, in a new way that allows the fullness of who you are to shine forth. So just appreciating, you know, some of what I'm talking about is so important that we have good, that you have good guides that you trust on this path. It's important to have, to have folks, teachers and friends, just who've traveled the territory who you trust. When, when we collectively become disenchanted and dispassioned, systems can change. It happens personally and it can happen collectively as well.
the fire sermon. This is um, the Buddhist talking to a thousand monks. Actually, I'm going to change it. Let's say monastics. I hope that it wasn't just monks. He was talking to a thousand monastics, saying, Everything, O practitioners, is burning. And how, practitioners, is everything burning? The eye is burning. Visible things are burning. The contact of the eye with visible things is burning. The sensation produced by the contact of the eye with visible things is burning. And he goes through all the sense doors. You know, the ear is burning, sounds are burning, odors are burning, the tongue is burning, the body's burning, the mind. Burning with what? Burning with the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's powerful language. This, this kind of burning. And, and, um, and he goes on to say, a practitioner walking the noble path becomes weary of the eye, weary of visible things, weary of mental impressions based on the eye, weary of contact with the eye with visible things. And he goes through all the different sense doors. It becomes weary of it. Weariness with the burn. And again, I'm just appreciating the power kind of of these elemental metaphors. Do you have a felt sense of that? The feeling, I mean, I, I, our planet's burning up. You know, I, 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 I see greed, hatred, delusion burning all over the place, internally and externally, right? And so it's like, we become, we become weary, and, and the sutta goes on, becoming weary, one divests oneself of grasping, and by absence of grasping is made free. By becoming weary, one divests oneself of grasping, and by absence of grasping is made free. That's the kind of letting go we're talking about. Because the clinging takes so much energy, it takes so much energy. And when the mind isn't clinging, it's just so much more restfulness responsiveness. This is from Rumi, called In the Fire. I sat long enough in fire. Now I'm up to my neck in the water of union. You say, up to your neck is not enough. Make your head your foot and descend into love. There is no up-to-the-neck union. I say, but for the sake of your garden, I sat up to my neck in blood. You say, yes, you escaped the alluring world, but not yourself. You are the magician caught in their own trickery. Cut the breath of self and be silent. Language cannot come from your throat as you let go and go under. Sometimes we uh, you know, practice getting comfortable with some of these neutral spaces that Noli Wei was talking about in her, in her Vedana, her beautiful Vedana instruction. These, these neutral spaces, these spaces that are more still, 
where, where the perception may feel a little different, may feel more diffuse. And, you know, often there's this idea, like often, you know, some calm starts to come in and, and, and the, the, the mind can go looking for something to work on. You know, don't go looking for trouble. Don't look for something to seek, sink your teeth into. Just like trusting, trusting it. If there's, if there's a feeling of that kind of neutrality or, the f- or, or, or um, sometimes it's like kind of a just equanimity, equanimous resting can have a sense of, 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 of dispassion to it. And is this, this from Bhikkhu Bodhi. It's important sometimes for us to hear this kind of stuff from, from the monastics and from the scholars. I was really, I, I, liked, I liked coming across this from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He says, though the realization of the unconditioned requires a turning away from the conditioned, it must be emphasized that this realization is achieved precisely through the understanding of the conditioned. Nibbana cannot be reached by backing off from a direct confrontation with samsara to lose oneself in a blissful oblivion to the world. The path of liberation is a path of understanding, comprehension, and transcendence, not of escapism or emotional self-indulgence. Nibbana can only be attained by turning one's gaze towards samsara and scrutinizing it in all of its starkness. The understanding of the conditioned and the realization of the unconditioned are found to lock together in direct connection. You get what he's saying? Yeah, he's saying that nothing is outside your practice. He's saying that the way is right here where you are, in your body, in your life, on this earth, in the mess of it. You know, that that's, that's, um, that it's, it's, it's the touching, holding, meeting deeply, in full contact, in full awareness. He's saying that that's, that, that it's, um, it's through the deep understanding of the conditioned, not a loss into a blissful oblivion. So it does, it, it all, um, in a lot of ways, for me, it, it all comes down to compassion. You know, the Buddha, the Buddha taught out of compassion, out of compassion for future generations. We're here because of the compassion and empathy of that choice. It's part of, a big part of why we're here. And, you know, I... I <laughs> The, the Buddha had, there were a lot of arguments that were in, happening in his communities. It was like pretty dramatic. I think wars, people tried to kill him. He lived in the forest. And when, when he was asked why didn't he choose to have a pleasant life in a palace with servants and um, fine meals, he said, I, he said he, the reason that he was living in the forest, he says, because I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. I just, it's so direct. It's so no nonsense. It's so straightforward. Living in the forest is enough. 
compassion for future generations. Like, boom. If only it was that simple for us today. And so, I want to say a little bit more about, about compassion. You know, it's, it's feels funny, a little bit funny to talk about because the, the, the incredible, profound Kuan Yin bowing practice that many of you are doing each morning, like, <laughs> that's a really direct gate. But I'm just going to say a little bit um, about the power of the heart that quivers when it encounters suffering. It's so important to know that the, the door opens inwardly. We can be so, sometimes folks are so quick to go take on the project of like, I'm going to become a more compassionate person. And then, and then it just becomes, you know, meditation being used as a self-improvement project. And, and we kind of miss the mark. <laughs> because if you, if you do your practice, you know, more and more compassion becomes the natural response. And most of you actually, you're all here <laughs> on some level because of the compassion that is in your heart. You're, you're, you're here on some level because you care about suffering and are wanting to respond. Unless somebody's here who like is getting paid to write a story and it doesn't want to meditate at all. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're turning toward practice and the teachings, there, there's some innate responsiveness that is part of that. And Franz Kafka, I can't believe this came from Franz Kafka, but he's wise when he, he, he says, you can hold back from the suffering of the world. You have permission to do so. And it is in accordance with your nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. The suffering of the holding back, the tension that we think protects us. And that the tension has its place as a protection. I'm not asking you to just get rid of that. But, but the tension also can makes us separate. And we miss that suffering sometimes. Um, you know, it's so important to include yourself in your compassion practice. If you're, if you're cultivating compassion practice to um, really take care of yourself. Really, I, I've been taking some time every evening before I go to bed I've just been reflecting on my good deeds. And it's been a really powerful practice for me. I've been doing this the last six months or so. And you know, it's so easy at the end of the day to think of all the things I could have done better at. All the things I could have done, you know, just, I don't know, that might have been a little bit off. But it's like, I actually think about all of the good deeds. It's a lot. There's a lot of merit. And for you too, you know, before you go to bed, like give yourself some time to really consider the incredible goodness of what you're doing here, even if your meditation feels like a total failure, you know, reflecting on your good deeds. When I started my Dharma practice, um, which was before my first retreat, um, it was really compassion practice that was my gateway. I had done a little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of Zen, but I, I didn't like sitting looking at a wall with my eyes open. I just wasn't into it. I was, I was 20. And, um, and I was in massage school in Santa Fe when I was 20 years old. And there was this class that we took that was about developing a kind of presence with the suffering that was happening with, with, with our clients. And, um, 
I, I remember, I remember the moment, this wonderful woman named Naomi, long, dark hair, this beautiful blue outfit she would wear. And it, it, it never had occurred to me before that class that there was any option to do anything differently around my suffering than run away from it. You know, that was really all I knew was to run away from my suffering. And when it, when it became possible to turn to my suffering as a way to awaken compassion, it quite literally changed the whole course of my life. You know, it was the whole course of my life. So powerful um, to, you know, really even maybe live with a vow, you know, a vow. May the suffering awaken compassion. May the suffering awaken compassion. So, it's so powerful. Some of you know Homeboy Industries and Father Gregory Boyle. He's such does such great work. I really respect what he's done and what his people are carrying forward. And he was interviewed by Terry Gross a while ago on Fresh Air. And he was saying that part of what we have, and, and so this is an organization that helps basically gang members and folks who are getting out of prison kind of begin to live more, more um, healthy, connected, productive lives. And he says, part of what we have at Homeboy, Indus, at Homeboy is this irresistible culture of tenderness. An irresistible culture of tenderness. He says, where people, you know, kind of hold each other. He said, it's a place of containment, a place where people can regulate. And they all come with this chronic toxic stress that's attached to them, like a big old heavy backpack. And if they can find relief, then they no longer have to operate out of their survivor brain. And if they can find our place as something as a sanctuary, then they can come to terms with what was done to them and what they've done. He says, we always say at Homeboy that if you don't transform your pain, you're just going to keep transmitting it. So it breaks the cycle and pretty soon they may cooperate and surrender and then they become the sanctuary that they sought there. And then they go home and they provide that sanctuary to their kids and suddenly you've broken the cycle. So he's saying, if you, if you don't transform your pain, you're going to keep transmitting it. This beautiful capacity we have to transform our pain. And as much as suffering totally sucks, it's a, it can deepen us. It, c- it can deepen you if you let it. I think that the, you know, the dominant culture creates suffering by not having a place for it. And we have so much, you know, initiations. Suffering is part of so many initiations that, that so many are, are not part of. It's like, it's unpleasant, so we just turn away from it. You know, death is so covered over, so hidden. And then, you know, we get, we, get, we get tough news or we are faced with death and we don't know what to do because the suffering is just put away. There's not a place for it. So um, this practice is, is just such a profound support for the, 
the unfoldment of, of the compassionate heart in many forms, like Tanisara talked about, all the different forms, this, this courageous compassion that we call upon to confront injustice, injustice, this tender compassion that we need to be with one another in, in life's vulnerabilities. And uh, our beloved Joanna Macy has a great framing around this one with compassion, with, with, with how we're so used to thinking about our uh, effectiveness as being what matters. You know, like, am I effective? And it's, it's good, it's great. We want to be effective in our lives. But she, I remember her saying, what if it's your motivation? What if um, your motivation is so much more important than what happened in the last sitting? You know, what if your motivation is more important than how effective you are? So it's like, what happens if you really turn to taking care of your motivation and including compassion as, as, a, as an essential, essential part of your motivation? And you really nurture the motivation. You know, then some of the effectiveness begins to happen on its own. So much appreciation for the work that we're doing together. I'll just, um, I think I'll share a poem to end. This is by one of my favorite poets, Joy Harjo. She lives in Albuquerque. She's a poet and a musician. She comes, sometimes comes to Durango and plays music. I always miss her shows because I'm always away teaching, <laughs> but she's great. And this is for calling the spirit back from wandering the earth in its human feet. Put down that bag of potato chips, that white bread, that bottle of pop. Turn off that cell phone computer, remote control. Open the door, then close up behind you. Take a breath offered by friendly winds. They travel the earth, gathering essences of plants to clean. Give it back with gratitude. If you sing, it will give your spirit lift to fly to the star's ears and back. Acknowledge this earth who has cared for you since you were a dream planting itself precisely within your parents' desire. Let your moccasin feet take you to the encampment of the guardians who have known you before time, who will be there after time. They sit before the fire that has been there without time. Let the earth stabilize your post-colonial insecure jitters. Be respectful of the small insects, birds, and animal people who accompany you. Ask their forgiveness for the harm we humans have brought down upon them. Don't worry, the heart knows the way Though there may be high-rises, interstates, checkpoints, armed soldiers, massacres, wars, and those who will despise you because they despise themselves. The journey might take you a few hours, a day, a year, a few years, a hundred, a thousand, or even more. Watch your mind. Without training, it might run away and leave your heart for the immense human feast set by the thieves of time. Don't hold regrets. 
When you find your way to the circle, to the fire kept burning by the keepers of your soul, you will be welcomed. You must clean yourself with cedar, sage, or another healing plant. Cut the ties you have to failure and shame. Let go of the pain you're holding in your mind, your shoulders, your heart, all the way to your feet. Let go of the pain of your ancestors to make way for those who are heading in our direction. Ask for forgiveness. Call upon the help of those who love you. These helpers take many forms, animal, element, bird, angel, saint, stone, or ancestor. Call your spirit back. It may be caught in corners and creases of shame, judgment, and human abuse. You must call in a way that your spirit will want to return. Speak to it as you would to a beloved child. Welcome your spirit back from its wandering. It may return in pieces, in tatters. Gather them together. They will be happy to be found after being lost so long. Your spirit will need to sleep a while after it's bathed and given clean clothes. Now you can have a party. Invite everyone you know who loves and supports you. Keep room for those who have no place else to go. Make a giveaway and remember to keep the speeches short. Then you must do this. Help the next person find their way through the dark. The last sitting will be at nine for those of you who, who have energy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.